I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Juno Diaz on James McBride's Deacon King Kong. Deacon King Kong is many things. A mystery novel, a crime novel, an urban farce, a portrait of a project community. There's even some Western in here. The novel is, in other words, a lot. Fortunately, it's also deeply felt, beautifully written, and profoundly humane. McBride's ability to inhabit his character's foibled, all-too-human interiority helps transform a fine book into a great one. He's written beautifully before in his beloved memoir, The Color of Water, and with terrifying irreverence in his National Book Award-winning novel, The Good Lord Bird. But Deacon King Kong reads like he's tapped a whole fresh seam of inspiration and verve. It's clear that he's having a blast, and his spirit of funning irreverence supercharges the entire narrative like home-brewed black lightning. James is my guest this week on The Literary Life, and Deacon King Kong is his most recent novel, just selected for Oprah's Book Club. His books have won the National Book Award and have been made into films. He's also a very talented musician and was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama for, quote, humanizing the complexities of discussing race in America. 
His books have been translated into 19 languages, selling millions and millions of copies, which makes me very, very happy. Because not only is James an insanely talented writer, but he's also one of the nicest guys around. My guest on The Literary Life today is the great James McBride, author of the just-published Deacon King Kong, uh, a book that I loved spending time with. It's an intricate, funny, heartbreaking story which will capture your imagination and keep you, uh, keep you up till the wee hours of the night like it did for me, I'll tell you that. Um, how have you been, James? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you very much. Feeling good, you know? You know, we've seen each other over all these years. I mean, you know, we just opened, today is a very big day. We just opened our bookshop in Carl Gables. Um, is that right? One that you've been to. Wow. And I remember an evening, I think it might be, God, over 10 years already, where you came with your band and you played in the courtyard. Yeah. I don't yeah. remember that at all, but it was... Yeah, I do, yeah. It was yeah. a great evening. I think you were... Were you doing a documentary at the time? I don't remember. Yeah, I think we, yeah, we were filming a documentary for Comcast or something like that. We had a big bus and, you know, it was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Really cool. And then over the years, you've come to Miami and you've given talks and readings and you've been at the book fair and you played with Dave Barry and the Rock Bottom Remainders, right? Right. Try not to remind me of that. That is a <laughs> terrible experience. No, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> group. I know, I know. You were like you were like the ringer. You were the only guy who could really play anything, I think. Well, I had so much fun playing with those guys. I mean, they're just, you know, men and women. I'm, you know, Amy Tan. And, and I mean, I had a lot of fun, you know. I mean, I thought that band was, I thought that band was quitting. Every time I hear it's, it's over, there's another gig. I know, I know, I it's know. The endless band. It's the endless band. They'll be playing, you know. When when America's a great nuclear cloud, the only thing left will be the rock bottom remaining. <laughs> it's it's like yeah, it's like Bob Dylan's endless tour, right? <laughs> so that's a tour people want to see. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's true. Well, recently I've seen it. And I'm not so sure, but oh, is that right? Wow. <laughs> a couple of a couple of the recent ones were not my favorites, but um, the last time I saw you, I'm, I don't know if you remember it, but it was. It was about six months ago in Baltimore during the winter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. We on this terrific panel. And, and uh, that was in January, in late January. And in the last six months, kind of the world has been turned upside down, I guess. Um, and, you know, I always think of you as a very optimistic guy. You're always upbeat. Your work, your work deals with tough subjects, but from a very optimistic point of view. So... Um, has this last six months tested you in any way? Well, I mean, um, listen, cynicism for a writer is a deadly thing to have. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, uh, it's a plot killer. It's a story killer. So, I, I, look, I'm very proud of what th this nation has managed to accomplish in these last few months. I mean, we we are being tested to the limit. And we're still holding together. There are things that are not right, certainly. Um, but we're asking the right questions. I mean, we're not laying dormant and, um, and allowing ourselves, uh, allowing justice to just walk away from, from us and show, show 
us his or her back or its back. I mean, people are actually, look, the way, as bad as it's been, given the political dissension in this country, it, it's, it's a wonder, it's, it's wonderful that we're not trying to kill each other, although that is happening to some degree, but it's certainly not happening to the degree that, um, that uh, it, it, it should be given the, dis, the level of discourse that has uh, ping, pinged out of Washington and beyond. So, I mean, look, we've always had problems and we've always managed to get through them. And we got through the Civil War and we'll get through this. Um, I, I'm heartened when I see all of these young people so involved in politics now. It makes me proud of them we, because we've done such a terrible job. You know, we look at, I mean, my books are enthusiastic because I always look to the pot. I, I always realize that my feeling is that we have much more in common than we are different. That's just how I was raised. You know, my mother, when she raised us, she, would, she never tarried on questions of race or class. It didn't even occur to us. She just, is this a decent person? Okay, good. If they're not, then just ignore them. And that was the best revenge. I remember the story you told somewhere that I read about, you know, your mother taking you to the circus and your sister was lost or something, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. My mother took us to the sea, you know, see the circus at, in Manhattan. And um, my sister Kathy got lost. She's the one younger than me. And, and my mother described how she just was completely distraught. And she just, she couldn't find, she didn't know where she was. And was thousands of people milling around. And then she said, the, the, people, the, just, the crowd just parted for an instant. And she saw standing like just a few feet away from her was my sister Kathy holding the hand of a cop. And she was so grateful that, um, for that policeman. And, you know, look, I, look, I have had my issues with the cops, surely. And, and I, I am surely in, in favor of all the Black Lives Matter business. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that when something really breaks bad, you're not going to call Al Sharpton. You're calling the cops. And most of the time, 90% of the time, you get someone who does a great job. So, you know, and the militarization of the cops and all this other stuff, and that stuff has to be addressed. But if you deal with the decency of people, most of the time you'll get decency back. Now, you know, we, we're, seeing some, we're seeing some other things at play that we're blaming the cops for. You know, the cops are just the tailpipe of the car. It's the car that should be the issue. It's not the cops. Right. So, I mean, I have nothing against, you know, I, I think the rhetoric... Look, our job as writers is to look beyond the headlines. My job is to look to the deeper story of what needs to happen in terms of how we talk to each other. Um, and I mean, if you want cynicism with polish and glint and gleam and, and, and story and attractiveness, read Lindsay Schreiber. I mean, she's great. She's a great writer, very cynical. And, you know, I don't agree with her politics, but but she, you can learn a lot by reading her work. And she's talented. And she's got something to say. And then you close the book and you read somebody else you like. Or someone else whose politics you might agree with more. But reason and discourse is the... Look, books and books is the last line of reason and discourse in this country. The, the, you know, independent bookstores and libraries. And so we've got to work to keep that kind of discourse going on because... The internet has become a, a sort of a wild west of who can fling the quickest 15 words out 
and then make a headline of it to last for two or three days. You know? Oh, isn't that the truth? You know, there's a book that I talk about a lot on this show and in my life. It's that book by Neil Postman, who taught at NYU for a lot of years. Yeah. Called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I've and never read that book. Oh, I'd love to get it to you. And, this, and the subtitle is Serious Discourse in the Age of Show Business. And yeah. it's all about discourse. And it's all about serious discourse. And I agree with you. I think what's so heartening over this last six months to see is the seriousness of the discourse not in the straight media, not necessarily online, but, and not necessarily on Fox. But, but you know, you get voices on television now that you and I are about the same age. I never remember those voices on television. You know, I mean, you know, they would never really, you know, everybody was put into their, into their silo. You know, people right. protesting were thought of as thugs. Right. Uh, right. If you were against the war, you were a hippie. If you were this, you were that. Right. And now we're seeing the nuances being talked about in a way that I can never remember myself. Well, I mean, when you trivialize someone else's pain uh, or, or, or hide or use uh, race or nationalism or jingoistic behavior um, or, or patriotism as a, a, as a refuge and use it as a, use it to absolve yourself of the responsibility of care for, for caring for someone else, then, um, then you don't really deserve American citizenship, really. Because the country was really founded on the principles of everyone being equal and really trying to make the world better. It wasn't founded on the principles of, you know, I got mine, you get yours, and all that other business. I mean, anyone can say anything they want at any time in this country. But our responsibility, which we really took seriously until recently, was that when you said something, you, your name was behind it. Your reputation, right. your house, your home. You couldn't just anonymously go and spread garbage around and then go out and, you know, uh, uh, eat a bag of popcorn. You know, you, if, if I, I, I've always felt and I still feel if you're going to write a letter to the editor, sign your name. And if you're going to say something negative about someone on the, on the internet, look, if you can't say something about someone when they're in the same room, you probably ought not to say it. Because most, most of the time, it's not a good idea. I mean, going back to the whole business of the cops. Okay, nine times out of 10, well, I won't use numbers, but all of us remember our business with the police. All of us can remember when we got stopped. Now, policemen make 100 stops a week. They can't remember. So, you know, are you going to judge a whole group of people? If, if I see someone in the street and they say, James McBride, the great author, and I say, get out of my face. I hate your gut. What? You know, they'll remember that, and I'll, I'll forget all about it, and they'll remember that, that exchange for them. <laughs> so you, you, have to, you have to, there's no room in our society for people to say, I made a mistake. Right. And especially, you know, when there's weapons involved, there's, right. there's no room for, there's no, so we have to go back to becoming a, a, a society where, where, where there's room to say, I, I'm, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. Um, that, would be, that would be the beginning of, of the kind of discourse that, that is intelligent, as opposed to this constantly shouting and using slogans and people getting rich off, off of nothing, you know, just and doing nothing, and great writers starving because people don't know what to read because they're just distracted by so much nonsense. That's well said, James, really well said. I mean, and I think 
one of the things that makes me appreciate your work so much, and I think it's such evidence in Deacon King Kong, is you have some pretty, pretty um, easy to stereotype characters in this book who are not stereotypes. You have characters who, if you just paint the picture of who they are, you know, just give their description, we'll all go, we'll all fall back to where we are. Whether it's whether it's that cop, uh, the Irish cop, um, yeah, pots, yeah, pots, or whether it's uh, elephant, or whether it's any of those guys, you know, we will think of ourselves. Is that your dog? <laughs> it's a gorgeous cat. We will think of them stereotypically, but you've taken it one step further. I mean, what you did with pots is amazing. You created this this well-rounded character with sister G who's they're in love with each other. I mean, it's this, I, I, I had uh, hair stand up in the back of my neck when you were describing when they first met, here's a cop meeting somebody in the projects and, you know, both of them sort of finding each other completely out of the blue. Um, that speaks to your humanity. It speaks to your sense of nuance as well. As well. Well, I mean, we live in a world of nuance, first of all. And, and secondly, th there are Irish cops who have fallen in love with black women and vice versa. Yeah. Um, I mean, this happens. That how, how you see the world is, look, one of the things that's really nice about being a writer is that you can see the world, especially in fiction, you can see the world that you choose to see. And you present that world to people. And they say, okay, I get it. I understand. I, I'm with that. I mean, I remember when I saw... I did an event with Mrs. Barbara, the late, very great Mrs. Barbara Bush. And she was giving an award to somebody because they learned how to read. And I was backstage and there were a lot of people back there because the President Bush was there, the first president. <laughs> I mean, not the, the father. The father, I think, I'm not sure if the, the son was there, but I know the father was there. But in any case, I heard these two women laughing and cackling behind the curtain, you know, and I said, there must be work. They must work here. And I pulled the curtain back. <laughs> it was Barbara Bush and the lady that was getting the prize. Oh, wow. I mean, you talk about the first lady of the United States and the Mexican American woman who was getting the prize for learning how to read, talking like two old friends. Right. Right. That's real America there. Yeah. No, That's you're... the kind of America we, we live in and we, we will, once again, regain. That's really, and that's the America that I write about when I write my books. And you do, I'm telling you, it, this, uh, this book, with all the characters in it, uh, does just that. Let me, let me ask you a couple questions about the book. You know, again, I was a kid like you were a kid in 1969. It was a great year. It was a really interesting year for me. I think I'm a couple years older than you, but why 1969? What, what is... Why is it such a pivotal year in your life? Well, first of all, that was the year the Mets uh, won the World Series. Right. Um, it, was, it was after Martin Luther King had died and the civil rights movement had sort of begun, in my own mind, it, it, it became like, oh, this is what this is. You know, I was 11 years old. Um, it was before crack and before... The, the, and that, that's really important because crack destroyed, really destroyed the parts of urban America that most people knew. 
And there was still enough integrated areas in Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx to call these areas integrated and, you know, racially integrated. I mean, look, during the 60s and 70s, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, City College in New York sent more Jewish people to medical school than any, I mean, I think there was a study about it because Jews in New York couldn't afford, that's all they could afford, and City College was free. Right. Uh, and um, so it, there was a time, there was that during the 60s into the mid 70s when New York began to really fall apart. New York was still integrated in a way that I remember that was, that I won't say it was friendly, but we knew how, we, we were forced to live with each other. We're forced to stand in the line in a grocery store together. And even you were, you were, the book takes place in the causes, which is really um, Red Hook, right? Right. Which, yeah, yeah. You live for the first part of your life, right? Yeah. And I, yeah. And I know Red Hook well because my godparents lived there all my life, you know, I mean, until they died. And so I would spend, I would go there and spend, you know, two, three weeks of summer with them. And, uh, and my, my mother and father started a church in Red Hook that still exists now. And so, you still, you still, you yeah, still. I'm still involved with the church. Yeah. I started a music program there. We have uh, like 23 students. We teach them. We teach piano, bass, and drums. And because so, we teach so in Red Hook, even at the time, I think what, it, what impressed me was I mean, you had all the problems that the projects have, yet there was a sense of community there that was so overbearing. Not overbearing, but, but oh, so well. profound. People watching out for other people, right? Is that... Is that it's still, I mean, even now it's still that way. Not as much, but even now it's still that way. Because people know you. You know, I've been, I've been doing my program Red Hook now for six years, seven years. I've been at the church, and my church is next to a store where they sell, I mean, I don't know what they sell, but they, it ain't just grocery. They ain't selling just groceries. <laughs> I've never been bothered there because I don't bother anybody. They know I'm affiliated with the church. Right. And most of the young guys there are, I mean, some of them I've seen now, I've watched them grow into teenagers and it's been some difficult, watched some difficulties, you know, watched them cope with difficulties. And it's kind of sad, but they know that I'm not there to bother them or lecture them and say, leave me alone. They, everyone has their own, everyone stays in their own lane, you know? Um, you, but you get to know young people and you see them and you say, why, you know, what's the Why are you doing Get over here, you know? But it's more, it, was, it was more of that when I was younger because, you know, nowadays a kid can pull out a gun and, you know, pop you. But they can pull out a gun and pop you in the head anywhere, anywhere. In fact, I, I feel safer in Red Hook. I mean it. I feel safer in Brooklyn. And I ever felt in like places like Texas and the, with these people carrying around, you're going into a 7-Eleven, a guy's got a gun. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, but my point is that, you know, people still care for each other in every community. And we've, that's where we, that, that's, that's how it was when I was a kid. And, and to some degree, it still exists. We just don't know how to acknowledge it. You know, we just don't know how to, to frame it because we've learned that it's easy to go and just click a button on your phone and say, you know, thank you, as opposed to getting in your car, walking down the street and saying, thanks a lot. I mean, one of the great things about your bookstore is that people talk to each other there all the time. It's, you know, they can sit down, have a cup of coffee, yak away. I mean, they can, they can live. Well, that's the sense of community that we all try to create. That's what, that's what this virus has attacked. 
<laughs> completely is this ability of people to come together. Hope, hopefully it'll, it will dissipate, you know, enough to bring people back together again. And I think it will. So we just have to, we have to get to the other end of it. Here you are, you're James McBride and you came from this background, but what was the germ of this no novel? What was the, basically the germ of it? I mean, it's, um, it's basically about a guy, you focus on a guy, a sport coach, who gets himself into all kinds of trouble, but he is kind of, it's, it, it reminded me a little bit of sort of like Cervantes, a little bit like Don Quixote in a sense. He's tilting at windmills. He's, he's a kind of drunken Don Quixote, but, but it was really interesting in terms of, in terms of just where you took it. So what is your, you know, I don't want to ask you a process question, no. but how, what is the kernel of it? How does it, how does it germinate? How did you begin to, to sort of flesh out this very complicated story that you did? You know, one of the things that has really, the internet has really destroyed is the sense of innocence and discovery that lives in all of us. And Sport Code is an old man who's an innocent. He doesn't really, you know, he was, he at, you know, I get to it in the end of the, at the end of the novel, I, you know, I explain his, his, you know, the pain he suffered as a child, but right. you never see that because he's always laughing. He's always drunk. You know, he's a deacon at the church. He's always laughing and, you know, he's never, never sad. And he doesn't, you know, deep insults go right over his head. He just doesn't, it doesn't care about any of He's the, he's the drunk, he was guy who gets drunk and dies at 20 and, and you bury him at 80. Right. And how many of us had known people like that? We know all of us know people like that, but yet you imbued, you you imbued them with characters uh, qualities that I know you love. Things like baseball, right? Yeah, yeah. Baseball is so prominent in his life. Yeah, yeah. Baseball. Well, when when I was a kid, you know, my my parents didn't really would not allow us to sit home and bellyache about what was wrong. They simply didn't allow it. They just said, go out and work harder and do better. They didn't want to hear it. My mother didn't want to hear it. And, she, and I would see, you know, my mother was white, you know, and she, would, she was truly discriminated against when she was a mother. She didn't care. She would never acknowledge it. She always looked to what was next. And so what I like about Sport Code is that he represents a generation of, of African-Americans who, who understood everything, but simply just kept moving forward. Now, I'm not saying that that, that was better or worse, but I, I admire it be, because he got to the finish line, he got the job done. Now, what he couldn't express emotionally, it destroyed him to some degree, but he still got to the finish line. And I think that the business of innocence is something I'm just always fascinated with because you can play that out any, any way you want. One of the problems being in the, in the internet age is that kids, they lose their innocence at age nine. You can go into a computer and can type in anything you want. Naked women, whatever you want to do. And yeah. so you, the, the discovery, the, the creative part of life, you're cheated out of that, you know? And one of the thing, good things that's, that's happening now is that because our young people are forced into the street, to really express their opinion in ways that most of them in things that they never really had to think about. We're forcing them to some degree to learn the business of discovery and justice. And that is something to really smile about. 
because they'll never forget this time. They'll never forget they couldn't graduate with, you know, and, and have the three months at the end of the school year to monkey around and fool around and smoke weed and run around after. They didn't have that. They had to really sit at home and think and do. And now they got to now they got to go into the street to protest for lives of people that they never knew and they never even thought about. And suddenly they're changing. And that is something to smile about. That's not that's no small thing. Is there an analogous time in your life when that happened to you? At all? Oh no! It's the last Thursday when I got paid. No, I mean, <laughs> um, I no. mean, for me, being older than you, for me, it was the Vietnam War, I think, and also the Civil Rights Movement. Those two things, you know, when those were my walking into the streets and feeling like there was change possible. I know? think, uh, yeah, I, I think for me, it was probably Nelson Mandela's emergence. Yeah, uh, as the president of South Africa, because at the time I was going to Oberlin when he was in prison and wow. we had this big apartheid movement. And when he became president of South Africa, I, I thought that was just a wonderful thing, you know. And, you know, the South Africa, um, um, what is it? What's the Star Spangled Banner called? It's our national song anthem. The yeah. South African anthem. We really need a second anthem to go with the one we have. I mean, I like the one we have. It's great. You know, say, can you see it? Like it really? really. <laughs> But the South Africa anthem is so good because it's sung in Afrikaners first, and then it's sung with the in, with the the you know black version, and it's beautiful, and everybody knows the words. And so there's something about seeing these people standing there singing both versions that makes you say, "Okay, we're on our way. It's gonna. It's a long road, but we're on our way." Um, we, I, I can't say we should change our national anthem. It's fine, really, but we have to. Ch we're learning to change our thinking. It no, it did. It happened for me. That happened for me during the the Nelson Mandela era when he became president of South Africa. I never thought that would happen. You know? Well, you know, you have these quotes that I've found, and and I, what you're saying reflects these so beautifully. At one point, you said, um, "I dictate my life." so that we have more in common than we think. You know, I always, I, you know, which, which is really true. I mean, I think, I think that's through all of these things. I mean, what you do is you have someone like me, a white kid who grew up in Miami Beach, identifying with these characters in Red Hook, and it was the magic of your writing and your empathetic way of writing that allowed that to happen. And that is the beauty of what an author, a sensitive, and author who knows how to do it, that's what they can bring to their work, I think. And you said it before, it's about creating the dialogue through, you know, through fiction. I think that's the best thing that fiction can do is have you live someone else's life in some way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, look, fiction allowed me to walk into, in the case of the Deacon King Kong, the elephant, for example. Right. Uh, and to, to live, you know, to live as an Italian in Brooklyn in the 1960s, you know, who has to avoid the hammer of the, the five families coming down on him because he has a little hustle on the side. And then it, it, it gives me the, the license and the ability to jump into the skin of, of Potts, this Irish American cop, and, and to feel, you know, just get a sense of what, how difficult life had been for him and his family before. Um, 
and obviously in, 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 in the lives of some of the African-American and, and Spanish-speaking people of housing projects that, that had, they have, you know, that gets, they have so, such, so, have such little voice in this world. But that's... But Jay, that's, listen, uh, James, your eye for detail. I mean, that whole business of the ants. I mean, that was, that was brilliant. You know, <laughs> or the cheese. I'm, I'm not going to do spoilers and give it away. But you have to read this book in order, and you just have to live with the book. It's just, it kind of takes over your life when you're, when you're living it. I mean, how could it not with characters named Bunch Moon, Miss Four Pie, Sport Coat, Sausage, Rufus, um, and then of course, Harold Dean, the big surprise, right? Um, uh, it, was, uh, it was really so much fun. Uh, James, I just can't thank you enough for it. Oh man, I mean, you make me feel good when you talk like that because I know you do with a lot of books, man. I, I, the check is in the mail, as he said. I mean, <laughs> no, <wow>. it, <laughs> this is no to me. It's, it's it's to me. It's it just you know. I'm glad that we're opening because I'm going to be able to hand sell it to a million people now. Well, that's man. But, that now you, I'm going to buy a new car because you. That's it. I'm gonna, <laughs> no, I mean. Look, maybe it'll be a Firebird, right? Ah, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> that, actually, my fav, my first car in nineteen seventy something was a sixty-seven Firebird. Really, it was an old beat-up sixty-seven Firebird with a three fifty and a stick shift. Wow, convertible. I love that car. I got it somewhere here in Miami, really cheap. It was beaten up, and it was just amazing. So when I now Heard Whatever happened? Yeah, well, I, the Firebird was the Firebird makes a big appearance in in this book. It does, it does, and you named a character after me, so I appreciate that. Oh well, yeah, but he doesn't get a lot of. I mean, he was he gets very the, little play. Yeah. <laughs> He's just an afterthought, so I not really after me, but it does have my name. Um, you know, and the way you wove it at the end, and the way you brought all the threads together at the end. I kept thinking, where's he going with this? How's this going to happen? Well, I mean, you know, the, the art, you know, I've always been fascinated with art heists and art, you know, the thefts. Yeah, you know, the that was art. so interesting. And um, th there used to be a rumor that, that um, there was like, there was a big art theft in, in, in uh, Boston and that it was hidden somewhere in Red Hook. And so I've always been fascinated with that, uh, with the idea of what happens to this. So I, I wanted to weave oh, that, that in. That was actually a rumor that that was actually something that was based in fact in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the 1991 uh, was, I think, can't remember. There was a very famous theft of art in Boston that they never, they never, I'm sure your readers will know, the people who go to the store will know. And I can't remember the name of the place. It was a museum um, in Boston where they, they, they stole a Rembrandt, they stole like three or oh, four. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in any case, there was a rumor that um, there was a storage facility in, in, in Red Hook that the paintings were, were held there. The cops never found, the paintings had never been found. There's like a million dollar, I mean, there's a reward for millions. The paintings had never been found. And there was a rumor for years that these paintings were stored in, in Red Hook in a storage facility right around the corner from my church. So every time I go to church, I look at that big tower. There's a water tower there. I'd say, man, if I could just get in that building. 
man, I just clean up. I was just straightening it all out. <laughs> so, was, it, was it the Isabella Stewart Gardner? That's movie? right. Isabella Stewart Gardner heist. I think it was yeah. 1991. Yeah. That, that, they never found those paintings. Wow. Now, unsolved wow. crime. So that always just stuck there. And yeah, then... that stuck in my mind. And then, uh, you know, the whole business of, um, yeah, the evolution of New York during the 60s, Robert Moses. Well, yeah, you got him in there. The other thing that really struck me was that, you know, there was a sense that everyone, everyone had dreams. There was not, there, everyone wanted, everyone dreamed about leaving, about going somewhere, yeah. about getting out, whether they were a drug dealer, whether it was Elephant, whether it was any of these guys. And that sense of dreaming or yeah. that sense of want, as I've gotten older, it never leaves. And you really realize how it always is resonant in you. And you capture that so beautifully in this. Well, um, that's an interesting point. I never thought of it that way. I do know that when I was a kid, everyone in New York wanted to get out of New York. Right. There was no, no one wanted to stay. It was too hard. It was too crowded. It was too hot. But you did stay because you, there was nowhere to go. And so you learned to enjoy what was there. And, um, but I think there was, there's a deeper part of life in New York that, you, that, that, that existed at the time. And that was that this whole business of the war, Vietnam War, all societal issues that were pressing on people, were, they were magnified in New York. They yeah. were magnified. Abby Hoffman, these people were, they were not only in the newspaper, they were walking down the street. They were on the subway. I mean, they were around, you know, and that just added, it was a certain kind of electricity to, to life there because these, these things like the Vietnam War, you could go down the street, you could see Sonny Stitt down the street and Santana was playing in Manhattan. I mean, there was always something, there was a lot going on. And so the only time you spent at home really was at night because at, you never sat around and, you know, you played street games, you played outside all day. And you, and music has always been very, music has always been a very big part of your life. You, oh, studied, yeah. you studied it at Oberlin, right? Yeah. And you, uh, and you had, and you still, you, I know you were a self You played session saxophone a lot. And, yeah, sure. Uh, are you still playing? Are you still playing a lot? Man, I still play. Man, do I still play? Watch this. I teach. I teach in the church now. And uh, we teach kids how to play like this. Thank you, I'm, a, I'm not a true piano player, but I've, I've been in church so much and I've subbed in church enough so I can play that old kind, that old gospel, that old time. And that's beautiful, beautiful stuff. <laughs> yeah. Will you read a little something for us? Yeah, yeah. Let me, uh, let me get back to my other position here. I was, uh, I was uh, moving around a little bit. I don't know if you're not supposed to do that when you, when you do a, a, a podcast. Yeah. No, no, that's perfect. All right. 
Uh, I'll read the uh, just the beginning of the book. This is from chapter one of Deacon King Kong. It's called Jesus is Cheese. Deacon Cuffy Lambkin of Five Ends Baptist Church became a walking dead man on a cloudy September afternoon in 1969. That's the day the old deacon, known as Sport Coat to his friends, marched out to the plaza of the Causeway Housing Projects in South Brooklyn, stuck an ancient 38 Colt in the face of a 19-year-old drug dealer named Deems Clemens, and pulled the trigger. There were a lot of theories floating around the projects as to why Old Sport Coat, a wiry, laughing, brown-skinned man who had coughed, wheezed, hacked, guffawed, and drank his way through the cause houses for a good part of his 71 years, shot the most ruthless drug dealer the projects had ever seen. He had no enemies. He had coached the project baseball team for 14 years. His late wife, Hetty, had been Christmas club treasurer of his church. He was a peaceful man, beloved by all. So what happened? What happened indeed? Exactly. And I hope everybody goes out and picks up Deacon King Kong to find out exactly what happened. You will not be sorry that you did. James McBride, thanks so much for being on The Literary Life. Well, I'm delighted, Mitch. It's good to see you again. Thank you for supporting so many writers like me over the years. You've done yeoman work. Thank you very much. <laughs>